What's up and welcome back to Now Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on? Hey man, how's it going? 2020, back at it again, full slate. With the white vans. That's um, right. Dave, we talked, we, we, we put a cap on 2019 last episode, we did it's the over. best movies. But when we recorded that, we we alluded to this this upcoming podcast. We were going to be talking about a movie that's getting a lot of Oscar buzz, a lot of awards this season, 1917. We're, we're talking about that today. Right. Uh, as well as a couple other movies, including Just Mercy, and then like five albums that have come yes. out in the last two weeks since 2020 mm-hmm. started. So we're really kind of bringing in a little bit of 2019 and then really jump into 2020. So I'm, I'm excited to get this podcast going. But before we get too far into it, I just want to remind anyone that, that's listening to this, if you haven't already subscribed, go to youtube.com slash nostalgiapod and hit that subscribe button. And also go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to follow the podcast any way you want to. Um, why don't we start off today, Dave, with uh, Selena Gomez. So yes. she dropped her, uh, her newest album, rare uh was this her third album or something along those lines third solo album technically it seems the way she she recognizes it more as her second album she doesn't really count that first one if you ask her star stands to just not not an album anyone no no it doesn't count it's not 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 (laughs) readily available or anything now yeah but honestly aptly named album because this is the first one in four and a half years it's been a long time for someone as famous and uh in the public eye as, as she yeah, and it's funny. Uh, when you think about Selena Gomez, well, what comes to mind for you first? Yeah, man. Um, I mean, I knew about her first from, was it a Disney Channel? Yep. Right? I think a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of, you know, had that Selena Gomez in the scene music, nothing noteworthy there. And then she starts making the solo stuff. And then suddenly she's like the most followed person on Instagram for some time. I believe she's now the... Uh, fifth most followed person or account on instagram second most followed woman so she's gigantic that's kind of crazy how we got to that point i'm still not really sure how that happened i think a part effect. of it probably has to do with the bieber effect oh yeah um so yeah i kind of think about that the high profile relationships and the kind of just kind of always being in the mix as far as pop stars go that's what i think of yeah that, that's what i think of too and for someone that's reached her level of fame to really not have that associated with her work, um, at least when you first think of it, it's kind of surprising to me. Um, and I, I think when I think back to her as an artist, nothing has ever really caught me in terms of, of like her songs really being these, these huge hits that I find myself wanting to listen to or go back to. I, I see her as a pretty um, like generic pop star in a lot of ways. Um, at least musically. And then this album came out. And I think that this is a step forward for Selena artistically. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that means I'm going to find myself revisiting Rare <laughs> very much this year. But I think that there's a lot here um, that I think is better than her past work. How how were you uh, feeling after your first listening to Rare? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think, you know, apart from some of those like obvious big hits like what's it? hands to myself mm-hmm. same old love same old love in particular that, that, that's a banger for sure but 
this full album's you know kind of unrefined and now with rare i view, view it as a comeback album because again the long layoff she's had personal issues medical issues all that coming back and delivering something that seems to be pretty focused on i don't know getting empowering oneself and and, and moving forward stuff like that. i think it's ultimately pretty relatable content for people that listen to this uh i think i think it sounded pretty good and i actually came away liking more songs than I have on her past work. So yeah, I think it's definitely her best album to date. And, you know, it was kind of, uh, kind of interesting just looking at the track list. Like you have, um, Julia Michaels on here a few times. You you even have, uh, Billy Eilish's brother Phineas starting to branch out. We're going to be seeing him all over the place in in no time. I'm sure. Um, yeah. A bond song. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the other, there's some cool dance pop on here. Like I like dance again in particular. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty good. Um, yeah, it's a it's a comeback record, and I and it sounds like she needed she needed just to kind of put this out and, and be at peace. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I think you kind of heard that in the single, um, which yep. is uh, "Lose You Lose You to Love Me." Um, yep, her first which, number one hit, uh, which I think is actually a pretty good song and a great ballad for her. I think she gets to show off some range and obviously a very meaningful song for her in terms of that comeback that you mentioned. I think what also sticks out to me, you know, some of the collaborations, certainly um, Kid Cudi in this final track, A Sweeter yeah. Place, really sounding like old school Cudi on this. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and quite an inspired choice by her. You know, uh, Cudi himself has had his own ups and downs, you know, That's in right. recent years. So I think having, that that kind of voice and of course the hums uh, to kind of drive it home are just um, it, I thought that was very interesting and a great way to cap off the album. She also just sounds I think more confident in this and it feels like she's really um, delving into her own personal experience to make an album rather than just kind of going with like the generic pop stuff like you talked sure. about. The song like Hands to Myself, sure I'm sure there's further meaning behind it, but that's just like. Right. It's that bubblegum pop we talk about where it gets stuck in your head, but yeah, how deep is it? You know, it's really only ankle deep. This feels like she's trying to dive into more inspiration, which is great to see. Right. And I think the case with Selena too is she's a famous, successful pop star that does not have an amazing voice. Therefore, she has to come through with strong songwriting. Yep. And uh, this is definitely her strongest songwriting today, like we said. Just, you know, For those sure. themes, I think, is just much more focused. And, you know, other songs like Kind of Crazy, mm-hmm. uh, her performance on Crowded Room, uh, you mentioned Lose You to Love Me, Dance Again. I think there's a lot more here than she's ever had before. And it's funny, A Sweeter Place with Cuddy, I like the song. Those synths, uh, those just showed up at the end, huh? We did not, that's nothing, nothing else on the album sounds anything like this. It's kind of a yeah. jarring song, but I don't mind because it's a good track. Definitely a good track. And it was added to our Nostalgia Best of 2020 pay, uh, playlist. Um, that's right. So if you want to check that. that out, go to Spotify. Um, any other thoughts before we move on from Rare? Uh, curious to see if we get more uh, Selena content on the JB or the Weekend Projects, you mm-hmm. know? Selena was the subject of My Dear Melancholy and also Purpose and the Jack Yu songs. So I wonder if, if we're going to get a little bit more, more of that. It's, it's an interesting triangle. We'll see. For sure. Um, will definitely be interesting to see. Um, but I know we'll be hearing more from Selena. We're also going to be hearing a lot more Halsey, who has... That we are. I mean, 
she has pro- been, been propelling as like one of the biggest pop stars in the world over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, we obviously reviewed her most recent album, Hopeless Fountain Kingdom in 2017. Yeah. Um, but since then, I mean, she's all over the place and her, her fan base is, is rabid. People really seem to flock to her and, and connect to something with her. What, what do you make of that? Because I don't think you really see Halsey as a great artist. Uh, yeah, let's, let's not uh, bury the lead. That's, that's a good <laughs> point. Um, yeah, I, this, act, this third album, Manic, uh, helped, I think, me focus my thoughts on what Halsey means like, as an artist, what her artistry is. And, you know, she was someone that I was not aware of until Closer from the Chainsmokers came out. That was definitely her big mainstream breakout, but she already had a very popular album badlands that was a you know big tumbler success and did big numbers on its own already even though it was kind of you know in in the margins mm-hmm. and then hopeless found kingdom which you said we reviewed uh i didn't i didn't really care for that album i cared for you know some of the singles i enjoyed and you know i saw her play at gov ball uh coming up from two years ago and you know i thought she thought she was good and i was getting impressed with watching some of those badland deep cuts uh, be performed and hearing the crowd belt out every word like she genuinely has really strong dedicated fan base and you have to respect that um and again we we saw the, the ire of that fan base when without me uh her uh, number one song of course was not recognized by the grammys right <laughs> and honestly i think without me it probably was the best halsey song to date probably. Um, definitely her, definitely her most successful uh, five times platinum was in the top 10 for 29 weeks. It's really a, a massive track and it's on this album, even though it came out in October, 2018, <laughs> understandable. Um, but yeah, manic man. Um, it seems that Halsey's sound is just the sound of what, what is today. Like she hmm. just changes for with the trends. Like, I don't know like when I think of Halsey. I just think of her doing or adapting to well, what's hot, what's, going to be successful today and she generally does it i think decently well even if i don't know if she puts her own stamp on things but that's kind of where i've refined my thoughts on it where that she just kind of goes with the flow and you hmm. kind of see that on this third album manic because she does a lot of different sounds on this she jumps yeah. around and just whatever trends around she, she dabbled in it on this album she's and that's what halsey this. does yeah i agree i i think i think she likes to explore different genres and different sounds which i think if if you pulled off to the effect that she did on manic um you can get away with it a little bit more Uh, i think the problem with something like uh hopeless fountain kingdom was she wasn't her batting average on that was a lot lower at least in my opinion and i think what what makes manic such a strong album similar to what we were just talking about with selena is i think what halsey's mining in terms of content and theme for this is a lot more meaningful. Um, and I feel like she also has a bit more of a cohesive uh, cohesive idea for this album. It felt like she really went in wanting to touch on certain things um, and really tie certain topics around. I mean, she talks a lot about mental health on this record. She uh, you know, talks about a miscarriage she had back in 2015 and how her relationship with that person was affected by that. And, um, you know, there's also, I think, some triumphant songs on here. Um, she's pulling in a lot of different sounds. You, you know, the a couple of the the <laughs> features here. You have yeah. Sugar from BTS, yeah, <laughs> and then you have Alanis Morissette, like a couple songs before that. Mm-hmm. Just uh, Dominic Fike too. 
yeah, she's just kind of pulling from everywhere. But I think I think I was pretty impressed with this, and mostly when she like stripped things down. I think when she's trying to do too much, it can just be too much. Like you said, when you're just kind of throwing every pop sound you can into an album, when you're doing the most, it's gonna sound like the most. When she really strips the songs down, something like Clementine, um, which has just like a really catchy hook with a mm-hmm. really um, low, a uh, really uh, reduced sound behind yep. it. Sparse beat. Yep. Or something like um, I Hate Everybody. Again, just like a catchy chorus with very little behind it and some, you know, some claps kind of thrown in here and there. It, it really allows her to shine more. Um, whereas I think some of the other more produced songs don't come across well. Right. Um, I don't know. Any tracks on here you liked? Uh, I actually really like 3 a.m. It's kind of reminded me of like Avril Lavigne. And yeah. yeah. Kind of brought me back to when they, Avril and Halsey performed Girlfriend, I think like Halloween a few years ago. Um, that, that was cool. I think that kind of shows like Halsey can kind of, again, adapt to different molds. And because she ultimately is a really charismatic performer, it, you know, it comes across well. And yeah, honestly, it, it, it really seems like, you know, her relationship with Jeezy and how that ended really kind of focused her as a, as a her focus her mood but mm-hmm. sometimes i think her songwriting is a little a little basic still like mm-hmm. it just it's just kind of simple little rote you know it's kind of just it is what it is um sometimes it gets in the way sometimes it doesn't uh what did you think of the song graveyard that was a uh, i think believe the second single for this it's a big hit already uh I'll put it this way. When, when you said graveyard, I had to really rack my, my brain to think about it. It wasn't something that, that stuck with me much. Um, yeah. What was your take on it, though? Well, it, it, it's that thing that she's done before for me where the beginning of the song where it's like, it's funny when like, you know, like mm-hmm. her vocal inflection in the beginning where she's delivering the lines actually sounds really good. And I like the inflection. And then it just goes into this really overproduced chorus that's just totally disinteresting it's kind of like what happens with bad at love another one of her big hits from the last album where the beginning where she's kind of doing almost like a hip-hop flow sounds really good and then this really over the top chorus comes in and i feel like the song just falls apart hmm. that's kind of been my thoughts on graveyard um since i've been hearing it on the radio all the time um but you know i i liked uh i liked alana's inter- interlude i actually liked all the interludes thought they were uh, more more inspired than I expected. A lot of times people just have throwaway interludes, especially when they're with guests, but that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. yeah, I think you know the, the more sparse stuff where she is attempting to be a deeper songwriter, stripping it down, really just focusing on the lyrics because that's really all the songs are, are giving you is the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Those are the strongest moments. Well, and I think that makes a lot of sense because as a, as a celebrity now, what I think people connect with is she's incredibly open about her struggles. I mean, she's disclosed right. that she's bipolar, you know, that she has to eat a gluten-free diet because she's gluten intolerant. Like all these things that people like, I think who are younger, see themselves dealing with, or see their yeah. friends dealing with, she's open about. So yeah. when she's opening up about her life, people are going to connect with that a little bit more than when she's trying to make this next great like radio hit. Bipolar, bisexual, biracial. She's right. kind, she's kind of gotten it all for uh, <laughs> for for twenty twenty. Um, I don't think she always gets into that kind of stuff though, which I think is a little disappointing. Like I know sometimes her comments on LGBTQ issues leave a lot to be desired to the community. It is what it is. Um, 
But the Zob's going to be really big. It looks like she's going to do close to 200,000 units, including 110 to 160,000 sales. Granted, there was a tour bundle included in that calculation. But yeah, um, it's, her, it's her best work, no doubt about that. She's evolving as an artist moving forward. I think she's only like 25 or 26. 25 years old, yeah. So both her and Selena going to be around and dominating for a while, I would assume. Um, someone that's brand new, though. 070 Shake. Uh, really came on the scene with 2018's Yay, where she mm-hmm. really sh- showed out with uh, Ghost Town. That's right. And man, crimes. we were pretty like we were pretty taken aback by hearing her voice because um very unique this like like almost like raspy ish but not quite raspy just i don't even know the way almost like you lost your voice in a way it sounds like but uh it's funny i did not know what to expect going into an album from oh no. no shake you know Same. like is this going to be like a more rappy album? Is this going to be like a generic first album where you're just trying to get a couple of hits people will pick up on and like build off of that? I was left after listening to Modus Vivendi incredibly impressed by the vision that 070 had going into this. Cause it, you know, she definitely could have gone in and just been like, I just want to get a couple singles, you know, have Kanye come on a couple tracks, really back me up. And that'll be it. But there's a clear vision with this. And it's like, it's like this Neo soul music. Um, yeah. Some emo really rap impressed. in there. Seems like you were too. Yeah. I mean, she's only 22. Um, I had heard that glitter EP, which came out a few months before. Yay. Um, not, not a whole lot there. And you know, I had first become aware of her just in looking into like, xxl contenders and she had you know been throwing the mix a few years back and again n- didn't have a whole lot of records really really out there to, to show for this is definitely it's the debut album but it's really the, the first work people are going to hear from her and yeah like you said the the commitment to a specific sound a specific uh approach to the songwriting is really evident and in terms of recent good music releases um can't we can't really speak to how involved that was although mike dean is all over this album which is Mm -hmm. awesome um this is probably the you know at the top tier of recent good music releases in the past three years you know it's it's impressive um and you know it's from listening to her talk about it she was in the studio with mike dean and uh dane or uh doing like LA sessions. She made a ton of songs. So it definitely sounded like there was a real like process to this. And I think that comes across where yes, she modulates her voice pretty consistently. There's a lot of auto tune involved, but it always sounds like she's doing it with a purpose mm-hmm. and for a reason. Yep. And you kind of need that when you're using computer on your voice, of course, <laughs> but I, it, it sounds, it sounds pretty awesome. man. Yeah. Um, and at this point now she's just, going to be one of the like, most anticipated next projects on my list, you know? It's just because, again, so young. And, again, at this point, now what direction does she go to? Because we already have seen such a focus in this kind of sound. I mean, again, I'm wondering if people are going to start pulling her in to work with her more, if she could become a real breakout artist or feature, who knows? But, yeah, the, the, distinct, uh, the distinct vibe she brings was... Uh, was 
much stronger than I anticipated. Yeah, and you know, I know we're we're complete Kanye stands, and <laughs> we we guilty. Yeah, are not the harshest critics, but it's it, it's one of those things where Kanye does seem to be able to like find these artists that are just so interesting and unique and have something great about them. And I think you can really see probably what he saw when he decided to take her and put her on the tracks on yay because i mean like just looking through this track list here i don't really know if there's a song on here i dislike um there's a couple songs i think that hit different you know uh, that are a little bit more um uh, intriguing to me than others but pretty much from like divorce on i found the record fascinating Mm -hmm. and not only for what she does with her voice but some of the arrangements so like the back half of songs are just instrumentals um on some of these um just really really cool to see so much going into this and also there's a track on here by the ebony's which i wasn't even aware yeah. was a group but apparently it's also <laughs> in those groups so cool shit just throw it on there yeah i um i was in the car and i looked at like the little thing on the dash where it tells you the name and i see the ebony's i'm like what the fuck happened to my phone did i like, right. skip something <laughs> oh wait no it, this is in sequence wow yeah <laughs> pretty funny uh, yeah and you know we're gonna be talking about max album a little later circles and I, I think there's some comparisons to draw just in terms of like style because i think there's a lot of like instrumentals uh that go into this that you can kind of hear similarities in terms of like I think this is a little bit more produced than Max stuff. Max is very live and you know just doing it doing it with a live band type of stuff. But just the vision and this like I don't know more chilled out style where you're mixing and rapping and singing with it. It's just really a pleasure to listen to. Um, well, what tracks stood out to you? Anything in particular? Yeah, you said some of them. Uh... I think Guilty Conscious looks like that's like the lead single at the moment. That uh, that one's pretty strong. But my favorite song is The Pines, which that kind of, that, that chant vibe is, that's my shit right now. That, that <laughs> song fucking rules. I love it. <laughs> 070 just doing chants for the rest of her life. We'll <laughs> make a career of that. Um, yeah, I thought that was really good. Um, the Pines, yeah, that one stood out. I thought Microdosing was actually a pretty good song. I really enjoyed that one. Um, also, Terminal B, which is in, in Daydream right before I really liked as well. Terminal so. B, produced by Francis and the Lights. Yeah, I'm my guy. Boy. The um, guy. I, I need Francis to make another album. Yeah, we're due for one of those. Yeah. Wouldn't be surprised to see one of those. That'd be cool. Um, any other thoughts on this? Uh, listen, it doesn't sound like this is on the radar of most people. So spread the good word. It's definitely the best album I've heard, uh, this year so far. Are you (laughs) saying that, that this is a better album than music to be murdered to? Music to be murdered by? Yeah, yeah, I am. I am going to say that. Wow. Uh, I think I'm on the limb. Yeah. Be, be careful. Cause Eminem might rap about you. Um, cause you know. Uh, I don't know. Well, why don't we talk about the album? <laughs> so Eminem, this past Friday, Yikes. dropped uh, "Music to Be Murdered By," first album since Kamikaze, uh, which is mm-hmm. if you want to hear our thoughts on that, go back and check it out. But they aren't they they ain't positive. No. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, 
So yeah, first, first listen to this album. Uh, <laughs> I was on a plane. Uh, through Are you implying you, you listen more than once? <laughs> I, I've gone back to a couple of songs. I, I had to I had to replay Darkness twice to make sure I'd, I heard it correctly. Because mm-hmm. uh, when it gets to the end, like I'm just like, is this really what this is all about? Um, yeah. I was on a plane, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna give this Eminem a listen. And I got like halfway through, and I really was like, "Why am I doing this to myself again?" Sixty-five <laughs> minutes, quite yeah. ask from forty-seven-year-old Eminem. It, and the thing is, is that they, he attempts. I think it, on his past albums, he received a lot of criticism because he has this uh, very twenty uh, two thousand three view, even nine, late nineties view in perspective mm-hmm. on the world um, that yeah. colored his early music and made him a star. Um, but he hasn't evolved. You know, we talked about someone like Jay-Z who has seemed to kind of be stuck, but then comes out with 444 and you see he's kind yeah. of learned how to age appropriately. Yep. Eminem has, and his his insights into the world in 2020 just don't seem to be very thoughtful um, or, or maybe well-educated. I'm not sure. Um, but regardless, it's tough to listen to some of these songs and some of the, the things he wants to talk about. And, that that hasn't changed since revival like this is no. the same stuff over and over um i i think that i think that there's more tracks on here i enjoyed than on kamikaze it's a low bar but yeah. i definitely enjoyed this more than kamikaze i will say mm-hmm. that but is this a good album i would say probably not where are you at? no yeah i agree it's better than revival and kamikaze but again that's saying very very little um yeah, it just seems like he, he just now he Eminem thinks he's just wittier than he actually is. So then his observations he thinks are more profound than they actually are. And when you're trying to acknowledge current events, even tangentially, that's fine. But when you're sprinkling in just blatant struggle bars oh. along the way and just straight up groaner songs that just should have been cut completely it's really hard to believe in any kind of message. Mm-hmm. And like he's done the past two records, there's a lot of shit he just says here just for shock value, just because he can. It's not smart or funny. He just kind of said it and he rhymed in and around it. Big deal. The Ariana Grande explosion oh comment comes to mind. Yep. Um, he also does this thing that he's been doing for three years where he tries to cram as many syllables as possible into the bar and rap really fast again not for any discernible reason just because he can it's not making the song good rap rap um, god ruined him in that sense because yeah. he got so much acclaim from it people now he feels like he needs to do it all the time and now logic thinks it's a good idea too it's really <laughs> annoying um yeah uh and you know what's so annoying too the beginning of this album he's still grappling with the reception to revival and kamikaze <laughs> it's like he just refuses to internalize anything anyone says mm-hmm. and talks about how he's still successful in selling. I was like, yes, no one's saying you're not a successful artist. You're like Taylor Swift at this point. You are too big to fail. You can do whatever the fuck you want at the end mm-hmm. of time. You have a built-in fan base. That's all true. But people didn't like the last shit, especially Revival. You, even your, your most ardent fans didn't really dig Revival. The, the numbers bear out. You know? Yep. Um, Maybe it was, in fact, your fault 
not everyone else's fault for listening wrong. You know, it's just, it just, it's just annoying to hear that from someone who again is so successful and been around so long to just be so inability, uh, unable to, to, to hear anything negative about him, you know? Right. But like the whole, like, like, Oh, well, when I tried to give meaning and actually have something to say, you didn't like it. Well, yes, because the songs were bad, dude. There's just two parts to this piece. Like you're smarter than that. It's just frustrating, man. But, but the inability to internalize anything, I think makes a lot of sense when you look around the album and he's still talking about very clear unresolved feelings about the abuse he suffered from his stepdad. And that's not to say that he should forgive him or he should be okay with what happened to him. But I mean, you're mid forties now, uh, late forties, late, late forties. If you haven't been doing this work internally to, to process this and make some peace, this is still what's driving your anger to this day. Um, again, we talk about evolving as you get older, maturing as an artist. These are just things that you expect to hear someone who's 18, early 20s, maybe even early 30s talking about if they haven't done any of this introspection. But it's pretty evident that M is a bit late in, in terms of his own work on himself. Um, with that said, there were some songs I liked. <laughs> so why, why don't we, uh, why don't we give, give M a little credit? before we, <laughs> we go into some of the ones we, we didn't like so much. Um, okay, so as I'm looking through, it's not as easy to find. All right, what uh, do you think about Darkness? Okay, Darkness, I think. First single. Yeah, you know, basically, basically, a, basically a surprise drop album. Darkness comes out. It's the most refined uh, message song on here, talking about a, a important thing, gun control. Uh, what did you think of that? I, um. I liked I liked the idea. I hated the the way he went about it, you know, because it, to tie in the Vegas shooting is just so uh, it just and, and to do it in a way where he's basically making Stan right. Yeah, but, exactly. <laughs> I'm fucked up too, just like that guy. Right, but but to, like it doesn't feel like he's adding anything to the perspective. I, I appreciate um getting political like that that is great you should be using your platform yeah. to speak on these messages but to I don't know, to use that as an example just feels mm-hmm. like a miss especially when you kind of undermine the meaning of that song when you then talk about another mass attack when you bring out the ariana grande line without that being in any kind of respectable or, yeah. or context it's just like mm-hmm. you, you undermine yourself literally a couple songs later um you know, a track I wanted to ask you about was Yaya, because I've seen mixed mixed reception to that one, right? I've heard people saying this is the best song on here, the production's great, it really goes. You have Black Thought, Q-Tip. Um, Royce. Royce, I mean, it, the, everything's here to be good. Did you like it? Still didn't like Eminem on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly thought it was a bit of a mess. It felt like just too much. Yeah. Um I don't know. Lock it up with Anderson. I, I like, you know, that's a classic breakup rap song. Mm-hmm. I thought Anderson was great. Brings good energy. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, Ed Sheeran, I thought uh, fit in well, you know, Eminem mm-hmm. the past 10 years has not shied away from having pop stars on the chorus. Think of Rihanna, think of <laughs> Skylar Gray, who once again is here on this album too. Loves um, 
adequated himself pretty well. It's kind of funny hearing Young M.A. and uh, Juice World on this just because mm-hmm. he was shitting over all the new school people literally the la- in the last album, and now he has two of them on here. Yep. And Anderson is a little older, but still kind of new school is here as well. Um, just kind of interesting to see that that heel turn. I'm kind of glad he did it. You know, you should be collaborating with 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 good artists. Yeah, it's a, it's a good good idea. Shocking, um, I know. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot of clunkers on here too. So it's kind of like when it's 65 minutes, a lot a lot of these tracks. We distilled this down, maybe cut like almost half these songs. I think it'd be a lot stronger. But that's not what happened. Yeah, you know, and uh, I like how he seemed to try to go back to his roots a bit with like the skits and like the theme kind of right. playing like the Alfred Hitchcock vibe. There's some some segues with Hitchcock in it, but uh, overall just like poorly executed as usual as usual from Reese Eminem. Um, yep. It's funny. Uh, I was actually driving the other day and um, Julianne I put on some like old school Eminem just because mm-hmm. that's what she, that's what her brother used to listen to growing up when it was like the uh, the Slim Shady LP and things like that. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's still so good. Like that, it's, and to kind of see where he is twenty years later, just very disappointing. Yeah, um, I've probably said this before, but if we stopped listening to Eminem in two thousand two or even two thousand four, we'd be better off. <laughs> well, uh, we're not putting any of his songs on our playlist, but we are putting songs from Mac Miller off his newest album, Circles. Um, first posthumous album really uh, put together uh, produced and released by uh, Warner Brothers and John Bryan um, who uh, is a pretty famous yeah. producer which I wasn't yeah. really pretty uh, cool aware story. of all the stuff he's been he's had his fingers on but like in recent recent years he's been he helped out with Lemonade um, he late registration swimming, late registration I mean he's he's been all over the place and he's he's done a lot of good work um, you know, we've had quite a few young rappers who've died, um, and then their estate puts out these albums afterwards. You know, XXX Tentacion, Lil Peep. Um, yeah. not usually to very good effect. No, was this different for you? This would be different for me, man. It's, it's uh, and I think the important distinction is that Circles was, by all accounts, very close to completion by Mac himself at the time of his death mm-hmm. and was intended to be a companion piece to Swimming, his last album. And the fact that Mac's ideas were, were much clearer and that he could actually, then John Bryan could actually kind of put some finishing touches on this is just different than mining laptop hard drives for any snippets he can and throwing on features from artists that the late xxx liked and would kind of make sense it's just a different uh attempt at making an album because again the estate is just kind of guiding it through versus trying to still build it back up right and it it does not come across as craven uh attempts at making milking the vaults and making money um important distinction with this is that circles was played for you know friendly critics of mac Back in October, this shit's been done, mm-hmm. and they just you know they put, they put it out now. You'll notice when he downloaded it, it didn't re-download in your Spotify as they uploaded a new mix. This this has been done, mm-hmm. um, and I think th- that's pretty clear. And, and frankly, I think it's it sounds 
it sounds pretty good and definitely definitely sonically lyrically feels like a companion to swimming which is honestly really cool to see and this kind of just reminds you of that potential that mac had and that journey and evolution that we we were seeing in the past few years of his work and again just reminds you of how sad it is that we, we can't see it continue you know and i know mac we know mac has a lot of shit in the vault on top of this a lot of it much older and i doubt we're gonna get a whole lot of that not recent stuff if this was a different artist that might be a very different different case but for mac it just definitely feels like a nice um you know, a nice like final testament, even if it's not the final work, you know? So I, I really enjoyed it. I thought the album was great. I thought, I think you spoke to it well. Um, swimming was such a step forward. It felt like for Mac artistically. And, you know, we, we talked about it when we reviewed swimming. So check that out. YouTube.com slash nostalgia pod. Um, it really had felt like in the albums leading up to swimming, Mac was kind of starting to find his footing, but still wasn't doing it to like full effect. And swimming really felt like the most cohesive work he had come out with. It seemed like he had a real vision. It seemed like maybe some of the things he was dealing with working through that were driving some of his content, he was starting to kind of get a bit of a grip on. Obviously then a month later he passed away. Um, But the fact that he had also recorded circles and had had this, you know, done done to some extent prior to his passing, I think it speaks just more to the idea that he had evolved as an artist to this person who had this clear vision, this clear sound, this clear direction he wanted to go in that he felt like he wanted to make music in. And that, that really comes across so well. This album feels incredibly cohesive for an album that is finished after the artist dies. Um, and really, I, I think the back half of this album is just phenomenal pretty much from like hand-me-downs to once a day you know even like woods i thought was really good but i i think that that second half you really can't miss on and that's to say probably my favorite song is in the first third which is blue world so yeah um a, a lot of good stuff on here any tracks that really stood out to you yeah blue world stands out as a pr- pretty pretty quintessential late period mac mm-hmm. track that 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 sounds just like just like what he what he was doing and yeah. If if he was still alive today, that, that that makes sense that that would be an album highlight on one of his albums. Like that song was great. Also, the production on Complicated, I really enjoyed as well. Um, they, Woods, you nailed it there. Uh, Hand me downs, like you said, hands as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like with swimming, it's really kind of uh, bringing it home that Mac was really more of a multi multi hyphenate. You know, he was becoming more of a just as much a singer songwriter as he was a rapper there's not a whole lot of hip-hop on this no. swimming had a lot of singing and not all that singing was that great you know he was still kind of coming into his own in that regard but again with circles you're just kind of seeing you know all that influ- influence he took from all over the place really kind of bearing out you know the the, the the thundercat fandom in him the tyler fandom the pharrell you know everything's yep. there and it's just really, really cool to see and again it, it, it's really heartwarming to see this release handled with such care and grace by his by his family. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, really, I honestly, really didn't couldn't couldn't have asked for asked for better. This is this was really great. Yeah, really, just makes me uh, makes me feel really sad that we're not going to get more of this. You know, a truly tragic loss. Um, yeah, there's a I really doubt. good article by uh, Craig Jenkins for Vulture about the relationship between Mac and. 
um, John Bryan. I encourage people yep. to read that. It's very interesting. I think highlights the, the album a bit more. And Craig also had a, a relationship with, with Mac and they're pretty yep. good friends. So uh, definitely worth a read. So that, that finishes up for music. I just want to plug uh, best of 2020 nostalgia, best of 2020 on Spotify. Uh, follow that. Give that follow. Um, Dave, I'm going to give you the floor. Talk a couple of movies. Let's start with uh, have mercy. Just mercy. Have Please, Lord, mercy. have mercy. No, it's called Just Mercy, not the Corday song. Uh, yeah, Just Mercy. This uh, has probably flown a little under the radar for people as a award season movie. It's only made like twenty two million or so right now, and it just kind of feel like they, they the, the the rollout was blown for this movie because it premiered at TIFF, and then they waited until Christmas Day to start the just in LA and New York screenings. It didn't go wide until early January and the truncated award season. We've talked about it before. Uh, that ain't going to work. And sure enough, uh, Jamie Foxx got a SAG nom for supporting actor, but no, no Oscar love for this. And this was a movie that I think had those kind of aspirations. And if you watch just mercy, you can certainly see that this move is a type of movie that's quite friendly to traditional Oscar sensibilities. So it does kind of feel like a, a misstep there, but, I would still encourage people to watch the movie because uh, I think it's it's a it's, it's quite enjoyable. It's it's uh, directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. He's known for directing Short Term Twelve, which was a movie that came out back in I think 2013. I actually haven't seen it yet, but look, listen to this cast: Brie Larson, Rami Malek, Lakeith Stanfield, and it's credited as the uh, oh, the first big role for Brie, and huh. that's a. Uh, she, she is, in fact, in this movie as well, but it's more, more of a bit of stunt casting and a small role. The lead is Michael B. Jordan, who's playing uh, real-life character Brian Stevenson back in uh, 1987, Alabama. He's a young lawyer who is giving uh, legal assistance to death row inmates, one of which is Walter McMillan, played by Jamie Foxx. This is actually based on true story, and basically it's telling you the, the, the kind of the, the first notable uh, entry in the life of Brian Stevenson, who actually is a pretty remarkable, uh, heroic yeah, man. Famous. Yeah, and quite famous at this point now. And, you know, the movie, I think people have talked most about the acting standing out, whereas I think the, the structure of the movie might not blow you away. I think that that's pretty spot on. It, it's a movie about the performances, ultimately about the, the story and the impact or message of this true story, you know, in terms of, uh, people's thoughts on the death penalty and thoughts on uh, justice, the justice system, and how it can be broken, especially in the South, uh, especially back in the 80s. And kind of focusing on that story and these performances kind of makes sense. The rest of the movie, it's uh, kind of structured and paced at a pretty uh, predictable or at least familiar way. But I don't necessarily see that as a bad sign because, again, the the, the story is, is really compelling. Um, Rob Morgan plays another death row inmate. He was is fantastic in this kind of continuing that supporting run he's been on with Mudbound and Last Black Man in San Francisco. Really crushed it. Uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr. also really good as another inmate. And really those death row scenes between those two and Fox, uh, the way they shoot the, 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 the cells next to each other and just kind of shooting death row, uh, that's probably the best, the best technical aspect of the movie and really compelling scenes. And then Michael B., uh, Definitely overshadowed a bit by the 
better acting from Fox, who he shares scenes with, and as well as uh, Morgan. But you know, still pretty solid at the end of the day. Michael B is a pretty compelling, charismatic guy, and he, I think, he does the Brian Stevenson story justice. If there's one negative with the storytelling, it's that it's really focused on the plot and story of uh, what Brian does for Walter McMillan. We don't get a whole lot of Brian's non-professional life in this movie. Hmm. Uh, Would have been cool to, to see this flesh out a little bit more. And again, Brie Larson is really just kind of on the side, more suncasting than anything else, but she is good in it. Um, and it's funny, Destin Daniel Cretton, he will next be popping up in 2021 as the director of Shang-Chi for Marvel. So hmm. we'll be talking about him in no time. Um, and you know, it's also funny too, I've been thinking about this movie with a movie I saw even more recently, which is Clemency uh, with Alfre yeah. Woodard. This is another movie that was completely botched in its awards rule. Alfre Woodard certainly was worthy of a Best Actress nomination, but this movie, as of today, is only playing in 10 theaters. And they just, they just kind of, Neon just kind of like punted on this because they have Parasite too. And they're like, all right, fuck it. I guess we're not going to roll this out for awards. And Clemency is, uh, Alfie Woodard plays a Death Row Warden. And this is a movie that's uh, more Row. about, yeah, yeah. It, it's more about the, the debilitating emotional effects that being around Death Row has on people, especially the non prisoners. Mm. And it's a, not a great hang and really dark, <laughs> but I'd say it's a better film. And Alfie Woodard is really amazing in it. But Just Mercy, I think, is a little bit more crowd-pleasing because it's ultimately a much more uplifting story and feeling. But they're interesting as companion films. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend both. But um, Just Mercy feels like it's something that could actually be a big streaming hit once it, once it rolls out in, in, in a few months. Yeah, definitely want to check it out. You know, Michael B., Jamie Foxx. Yeah, you can't really go wrong with those two. Um, you, you know, Michael B was kind of, you think about his career arc, was probably due for a role like this. Yep. Um, where he's playing a lawyer, defending somebody. But uh, I definitely want to check it out at some point. What was the other movie you, you saw um, this weekend? Yeah. So I also saw Weathering With You, which is a anime film. Now, we do not talk about anime on the show. Uh, you and I, we are not, keep, we don't keep up with the modern anime seasons. You know, we kind of stick to traditional no. uh, American and British British television, just kind of outside our purview. Um, did you ever watch any anime growing up? Uh, you know, like Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh from time to time, but nothing right. crazy. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, I was kind of saying, it's kind of funny. Like, when we were growing up, anime was a lot less accessible to us here in the West than it is today. You know, now with like Crunchyroll and also a lot of Funimation stuff's on Hulu, you can see a lot more anime than you ever could before, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in legal ways. Um, and that, that's really going to change with the HBO Max relationship with that uh, anime studio as well. Right, of course. So Studio Ghibli, of course, all the Miyazaki yep. films, Takata films, those will be on HBO Max here in the States and on Netflix internationally. Um, so yeah, everything again, just beginning more and more accessible, which is cool. But Weathering With You is uh, directed by Makoto uh, Shinkai. And this is kind of like his follow-up to Your Name, which came out in 2016. Your Name is the highest grossing anime film of all time, $359 million worldwide. It's wow. the uh, highest grossing Japanese film ever and the fourth highest grossing film in Japan ever. True smash hit in 2016 and it was uh 
uh, you know, followed up now with weathering with you. Funny enough, uh, I saw this in Boston. It was in about, I think, f- almost 500 theaters this past weekend. And my, my theater was packed, like huh. fucking packed, dude. We, we, with, and it made about 5 million this weekend. Uh, really? It was packed with, with, with people that were hardcore. There are some two Your Name characters, the, the two leads of Your Name, have, a came- have cameos in Weathering With You. And when they pop up, hmm. my theater fucking crackled, dude. Like the, the, the biggest pop ever. You know, everyone was so hyped. And it was just cool to see, see that energy in a the theater, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's also, you mentioned, you know, uh, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, that's like the, the, the showing genre of anime, you know, made for, for teen boys. You know, that's also the anime I grew up on as well. Naruto, DBC, One Piece, mm-hmm. Roni Kenshin, all that shit. I never really branched out watching other anime. Weathering with you and your name are, are romance animes. That's something I had never really seen before. Like, I just knew, knew the, the dude shit and like Akira and the Ghibli stuff, I guess, was a little more fantastical. But seeing like romance anime, it, it, you know, learning more about it, with like shows like I think Yuri on Ice and like people like really ride for this stuff and like get really attached to it. And it was kind of cool just to kind of experience it more in the moment. I believe it, uh, this just premiered back in the summer in Japan, uh, weathering with you and then premiered at TIFF here in the States and just got the release this past week. And just kind of that energy was, was a pretty unique theater experience for me. And I actually really enjoyed the movie. Um, it's about it's you know set in modern day Japan, but it has a fantastical um, element to it, and it's just about these two two teenage characters that come together. There's a bit of an environmental message to it, but it's not as mm. focused. You know, the, the mix of environmental activism and personal romance, what you personally want, it's kind of mixed in a cool, almost messy way that fits a romantic story. Uh, there's lots of really good humor in this as well, so. Weathering with you, man. I would uh, I would recommend this if you just 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 like animated films. It's actually the first movie in 22 years that Japan has submitted for both best animated feature at the Oscars and best international film. Huh. Um, it actually did, I did not get selected for either one, but uh. you can tell that uh, people in Japan are really proud of this movie. So I, I would I would recommend it if you if you're a fan. Uh, pretty cool. <laughs> Just from the picture behind you on the screen, and we'll pop back up when you start talking next. Um, yeah, really beautiful animation. So mm. uh, it's really good. Just looks gorgeous. So may- maybe something I'll give a watch, or I'm sure it will probably be on streaming platforms eventually. And yep. we should be watching more movies that are not made in America. That's right. Or England. Um, why don't we move on to a movie that was made in England, 1917? Sam Mendes, man. Yes. Sam Mendes and Tom and Baratheon. That's right. The, the duo none My of king. us knew we needed. Uh, is he? Is he your king? Yeah. <laughs> J- jumping out the window gif uh, insert here. Um, so, yeah. The, I mean, this is a, a timely movie to talk about with the Oscars being only three weeks away at this point. Um, the, uh, the Screen Actors Guild had their awards this past weekend and Parasite took home the best cast or right. performance by a cast, whatever the top award is. But to this point, 1917 has seemed like an Oscar lock, you know, after winning best picture drama and best director at the golden globes. It's won uh, a couple other awards. It's got the PGA prize most yep. uh, notably. It's gotten 
I mean, dozens of other nominations. This film seems yep. like a, a, a award season darling. Um, but, you know, you, you mentioned this when we talked on our uh, end of year movie list for 2019. It didn't crack, crack your top 10. I hadn't seen it at that time. And I was like, you know, I think it's definitely going to crack mine. It's Roger Deakins being Roger mm. Deakins. The camera is beautiful. The shots are fantastic. It's, it's it has a bit of a gimmick to it in terms of like the one shot, which, you know, I don't mean to like be reductive and say that this it's a gimmick because it's, it's certainly artistry, yeah. but the effect that the one shot has, I think uh, on multiple viewings is, is uh, questionable. Um, and and what that really does upon the first viewing, the first time you see the film, is it really makes you feel like you're on this journey with them. And I think that in a, it veils some of the the plot holes and some of the things that don't really make sense. And and the fact that this really is just a war story underneath it all. And uh, I think there's a couple of tropes and a couple of scenes that are roped in that really just take take you back out of the experience a bit. Um, so I, I wasn't left super impressed. Uh, I still think this is a very good movie and Men- Mendy's obviously is, uh, just an excellent filmmaker. I mean, he's made so many other good movies in the mm-hmm. past. One of my top 10 of the past decade in Skyfall, but right. yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that this is the work he's going to be remembered for. Well, what are your like initial thoughts? And we can maybe dive in a little bit more specifically on 1917. Yeah. I'm kind of with you on that. Mendes won't be remembered for this because we're going to give the credit to Deacons right. because the whole, everything that's flashy about the movie is the technical aspects of the movie. It's a technical masterpiece. That's not up for debate, but the most impressive parts about it are also the technical aspects. That means we're not as impressed with the storytelling or the script. And that is what Mendes contribute to most of all and ultimately i think people's enjoyment of this movie depends what they want it's a really impressive theater experience film yeah like you said does this movie stand up to second viewing i have not seen a second time i've seen people that have say that it does not as much when you know what's coming you realize that the plot is almost dictated by this faux wonder and from a storytelling perspective, I think is we're just we're just lacking a little bit because we don't know a blessed thing about Schofield and Blake beyond the fact that Blake has a brother who is the king of the north. That's all we know about. Him. Yeah, and <laughs> these guys have no thoughts on the war. They really don't have thoughts on really anything beyond what's right in front of them. Yeah. And when you combine that with like a lot of the deus ex machinas of the events that unfold mm-hmm. for these two lands corporals, it's uh, I just don't don't see it as like a top tier war film because I think ultimately we're 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 made to focus on the oneer aspect of it the whole time as if the oneer is like our narrator running with these guys, you know. Right. So from a storytelling perspective, I just thought it left a little to be desired, which is which is weird to say because again, the technical aspects are so impressive and so much care was built to making a period film like this. It's very expensive and there's great actors throughout in small roles. But yeah, man, 
it, it, it's it, it's not saving private Ryan. No, uh, the you're talking about the expensiveness to make it look good. The set design in this is phenomenal. Right. Like I I don't even know how they made some of some of this and how they set this up. Just gorgeous and and unbelievable. Um, and that that again that speaks to the technical aspects. You know, we we learn a couple of things about. Schofield, you know, he talks about not wanting to go home, how it's actually worse because then you're left right. like distraught afterwards and heavily survived the psalm. Yep. But you are kind of left with these these avatars and, and you know, similar to Dunkirk of, of these, you know, common soldiers, these people who are, right. you know, on the surface unremarkable, but are put into these inhumane and just unreal uh, things that you wouldn't expect to be realistic in modern day, everyday life. Um, war obviously thrusts them into these situations. What I think works so good about the Warner in the theater is when something like uh, spoiler alert, the rat hitting the trip wire happens, you're, you're shocked. And like, just like them, you feel almost blown back by what happens. Knowing that the second time around, knowing the beats of like the shock, it's gonna, I can't yeah. imagine I'm gonna be like, ah, the second time, so right? Like, or the comes. plane crashing, same right. thing. Also, with that plane crashing, I was like, how are they not like getting out of the way? This plane feels like it's gonna be coming right over this. <laughs> but <laughs> like, <laughs> us for the audience, when the camera stops moving, right? And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, okay, obviously, it's crashing into the barn. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you see the uh, the stabbing coming? I immediately thought of Saving Private Ryan. I was like, do not be friendly to the Germans. It's going to stab you in the back. Yeah. Shoot you in the back. Literally, you're going to get stabbed right away, apparently. Don't uh, do I, it. I definitely, <laughs> I definitely thought about it, but I wasn't sure. But I also kind of hate that they didn't like show it. You know, like I wish we had kind of seen it. Um, and that right. I, I think is a takeaway from the one or from So me. enough wanton death in the film. We could have just seen it. Right, exactly. But either way, um, you know, shout out to Tommen though. He really looked dead pretty quickly. Yeah, which I was like Pale really impressed hell. by uh, <laughs> the, the the makeup on that was unbelievable. Um, and you know, when we get to like the second half of the movie, and he he has the, like the the shootout with the sniper, something happens where he passes out. Whether he gets shot and is not knocked back, I think it's dinged in the helmet. I think is what happens. Something like that. And then yeah, he's, he's, falls down the stairs. But then he passes out for like, I don't know, 12 hours, wakes up at like yep. four in the morning. Um, the, the mechanics of it all, I, I don't know if I understand. You know, he's he's riding on a car for a certain amount of time. I don't know how long we're supposed to believe. It, it's eight miles to, it was it, and, Andes or whatever it is. And then he has to right. go east. And it's just like the mechanics of it didn't add up. He goes on a waterfall at some point. And that, that's kind of where the storytelling to me kind of falls apart. It's like, this right. is all really awesome to watch and I'm having a great time seeing these scenes. But I don't know if this all makes sense to me. Um, right. Like when, when, he, when he escapes being in like a German encampment yeah. and he falls into the river, he gets out and like you see like the really grisly thing of the, all the bodies floating, you know, it's a really stark visual for war. Great. But when he pops out, he's in the forest and he actually is right where he needs to be. There's the unit he was looking to warn the whole time. Yep. All right. Sure. Okay. <laughs> right. You're just kind of supposed to like believe these things. And uh, I think ultimately that's kind of like the embodiment of the thinness of the story. But also when he finds the unit, there's this guy singing and all soldiers sitting around in the middle of the woods and it looks 
fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, this looks cool. Or as he's like running and you have like the daylight over these like very white dirt. Like, yeah. Uh, one of the trenches. You're just kind yeah. of like, this looks incredible, dude. Like how, how do you even like color something like this? Um, and it kind of takes away from like the fact that he was like basically being held down by these two guys. So he couldn't get to Mackenzie, but somehow I was able to like fight them off and goes in and like that, that whole scene, like it was awesome seeing like Benedict Cumberbatch be like Mackenzie, but I also mm-hmm. was kind of like, is this really how this would go down? Wouldn't he have to like tell somebody he has this letter and like a captain would go in and talk to him? Just like, oh, well, sure. Yeah, yeah of course. All these <laughs> like pieces. I just kind of was like, eh, kind of took me out a bit. Um, Although, you know, kind of going back to the Cumberbatch thing, there are a lot of cameos in this. Yes. Um, any that stood out to you? Yeah. I mean, let's see. You got Colin Firth, Andrew Scott, Mark yeah. Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Richard Madden. I think yeah. that's, that's all of them. A lot of them. Yeah. Um, I think Strong was really good doing, doing Mark Strong things. He's just a really – he can be warm. He can be – evil whatever it is he's always a really strong performance on screen mm-hmm. him being a office a military officer makes perfect sense he was really good yeah. but andrew scott was like the one that gives you like true pathos in the trench he's like actually someone who is like this shit sucks bro good fucking luck or whatever here's some fucking holy water you'll be dead in 20 feet like that was amazing. I wish we could just hang out with him the whole time. I know. Didn't he like take a swig of the holy water after? Yeah, I think he, so. Like, he's like throws it back. Fucking hilarious. Yeah, that was great. Um, I'm also I'm wondering, you know, when uh, when he comes upon Mark Strong, the guy who's like playing the general, who's in the car, like bitching about the. Like, oh yeah, who was that? that that's I, I couldn't identify somebody. him. I couldn't him. identify it. Yeah, um, I've been trying to figure out who that was. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought Mark Strong and Andrew Scott were by far the ones I found most intriguing. I also expected more from what Mark Strong said about Mackenzie. You know how have a witness in the room. I thought there would have to be something with that. And yeah, I actually thought he would fail. I thought Mackenzie would say, "Nah, B, we're yeah. going," and and then that would happen. Kind of what happened at first, and then right. he was like, "Oh, okay." I thought I thought today would be a good day. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, Sherlock. Um, yeah, so ultimately, I guess where I'm kind of left, and I wanted to get your opinion, you know, Oscar's coming up, really probably down to three movies. Now that Parasite won, we got Parasite 1917 and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the best right. picture. Where would you put your money right now? It's tough. It's hard to say. 1917, winning the Producers Guild Award is a big, uh, a big win. You know, that award has been given out 30 times so far. 21 of those movies won Best Picture. 10 of the last 12 PGA winners won Best Picture. A notable one that did not, La La Land. That was recent. Um, If 1917 was to win Best Picture, it'd be the first movie without any acting nominations to win since Slumdog Millionaire back in 2008. So, you know, with the Academy changing with something as unprecedented as Parasite becoming a top contender happening, it's hard to put too much stock in any of the precedent. But it does feel like 1917 is at least the slight favorite for Best Picture. Um, I think we'll know early on if Mendes wins Best Director mm-hmm. over, like, say, QT. Um, Be a travesty. You know? 
but with with the acting support for Parasite from the Sagwin. You know, Sagwin is not as big a predictor historically, but again, it's tough to put a lot of faith in precedent right now. So I don't know, but yeah, I, I do feel like nineteen seventeen would be the winner. And you know, it's it's not this is not a Green Book win. If nineteen seventeen wins, I would not be mad. Mm-hmm. I guess I would just be frustrated because Parasite getting so close. Because if Parasite wins, that's them hitting the nail on the head. That's right. Moonlight winning again. You know, that's like the true grand slam. And nineteen seventeen wins. Yeah, that's a solid homer. Cool, it's a worthy film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I definitely hope it's either Parasite or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Those just feel like the movies I'm definitely going to be right. thinking about the most from this year. Um, but yeah, 1917 seems like the safe bet. And I think what will probably end up happening is Parasite's going to win Best Foreign Film. Uh, and then, or they changed the name to it now. International Film now. International Film. Um, you know, Once Upon a Time is probably going to get one or two, probably going to get a rating. Yeah, original credit, screenplay. Probably going to get, you know, the best supporting actor. Yep. And then Mendy's going to take home the director and the best picture. And it's just disappointing to me, you know, especially because like the performances in this aren't bad, but there's not much to work with. And I think exactly if you're going to award anything, it should be Deacons and not right. necessarily Mendy's in the film. In whole, totally. Yeah, exactly. And Deacons, I think by all counts, is going to win best cinematography for this oh, again. Yeah. Um, suck and win but yeah like dean charles chapman tommen he's good in this he has the best line in the movie where he's like uh oh matt you'd be uh you'd be wanking it in no time <laughs> and then uh mckay's like wrong hand i fucking died <laughs> hilarious yeah so good um but mckay who again has a lot all the physicality you need he doesn't have a lot of lines that's just not what this movie is about mm-hmm. and I just have a hard time seeing a movie that you literally didn't even nominate for best editing because there it's wasn't on the camera. Yeah. It's fake editing, you know, um, and you don't have acting nominations. This should be awarded for the technical stuff and it's in best picture already. It just, you know, it's, it wasn't in our top tens yeah. and a lot of those other nominees were. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, it's be interesting. Again, I'm not gonna be mad, but I will be disappointed. Yeah, where did you have it again? I had it, I believe, sixteenth. So, by no means, you know, low. Yeah, I've seen fuck ton of movies, but you know, I have Parasite one and Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood two. So it's a bit of a difference. (laughs) And you know, I do as well. Um, Where did I put it? This uh, let me just pull it up here. I'm pretty sure I had it down near the twenties. Yeah, I think I had it twenty three. Yeah, just it was a film I liked and technically great, but I don't see myself rewatching anytime soon. I'm not clamoring for it to hit streaming services. So, no. Uh, anyways, it's also kind of interesting because this was a late entry into award season, did not come out until Christmas. But the way they ran the campaign, people, everyone got to see it. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, here's our new contender when it's like, oh, it was once upon a time the whole time. And then Parasite, people have been evangelizing for it as much as they can since October. And then 1917 shows up the last second. It's kind of a, 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 a weird way the awards calendar has worked this year. Yeah. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting. I'm hoping, I'm hoping when we make our picks, I'm right when I pick uh, parasite to win it all. But anyways, uh, we're going to wrap up there for this week. Dave, what do we got on the docket for next week? The gentlemen's so, club. <laughs> so two weeks from now, We'll do our Oscar predictions. But next week, 
We have a lot of stuff still. We'll talk about Sex Education, Season 2, out now mm-hmm. on Netflix. We have The Gentleman, Guy Ritchie's new movie, Ensemble Cast, out this weekend. Actually looks pretty sick, not going to lie. <laughs> I'm um, interested to see if it's great or like hot garbage. I exactly. Um, I'm not sure if we'll be able to see it yet, but Anish Shiganti, his next movie, Run, is coming out. He's the guy who made Searching two hmm. years ago. I'm interested to see what he, what he gives us next. Um, Bad Boys for Life is already out. I haven't seen it yet, but it's supposed to be good. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to see that. Oh, the Grammys are Sunday. We'll at least talk about whatever the hell they fuck up this time. <laughs> and we might, get a, we might get a new Migos album, TBD. Oh, also, uh, Star Trek Picard's coming out. So shout out, shout out Patrick Stewart. Shout out Patrick Stewart, man. And uh, shout out to us. Hit us up uh, at Nostalgia Pod on Twitter. Again, follow the playlist, Nostalgia Best of 2020 on Spotify. Yeah. Uh, YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod. Subscribe. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll catch yeah. you next week. Yeah.